Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, all my old-time crime friends. Welcome back. It's just me, Melissa, here today. My partner in crime and fellow host Shannon is unavailable to record this week, but we still wanted to give you a story, so I'll be flying solo today. Not sure if that's a good thing or not, but I promise next week we'll be back on track. And being the master procrastinator that I am, we're only a few hours from our live time, so this is probably the closest we're going to get to a live show anytime soon. So we're in February, and Valentine's Day is coming up. It's just around the corner. I hope that you all have something nice planned for your significant other. But I have a tale for you that is fitting for this time of the year. And this year will mark the 50th anniversary that this case has not been closed. So today I want to take you to my neck of the woods and tell you the story of Jesse McBain and his fiancée Patricia Mann, two high school sweethearts, that their last place they were seen alive was at a Valentine's Day dance on February 12, 1971, at Wyatt's Hospital. The killer is still at large and has never been named. This is the Valentine's Day Murders. Patricia Mann grew up in the quiet, safe town of Sanford, North Carolina. She had a best friend named Caroline, and they did everything together, from playing nurse to a rowdy bunch of boy cousins who were playing army men to going on vacations together. They would even dress the same to get a kick out of people's reactions. Life couldn't have been better. And as they got older, they would even double date, often with sets of brothers or close friends. They were just inseparable. Eventually, Patricia we called her Pat, met a young man by the name of Jesse McBain. Jesse McBain was six foot two, athletic, dreamy, well-rounded, and even voted most likely to succeed from his classmates. He was co-captain of the football team. He was from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. People would come to him for help with their classes. He was always joking and having a good time, just the all-around popular good guy. And it was very easy to see how both of them could fall in love. They were high school sweethearts, and they fit together well. But being in a long-distance relationship was hard. So they would write letters during the week and plan their weekend dates. And then on the weekends, the boys, Jesse or Caroline's um, man, David, would drive from Pittsburgh to Sanford to hang out with the girls, Pat and Caroline, And soon, their distance would be even further as they got older. Pat was accepted into Watts Hospital in Durham. Her and Caroline had decided they wanted to become nurses. But Caroline didn't get into Watts Hospital. And it was almost that that made Pat change her mind. She didn't want to go because she didn't want to be separated from her best friend. But her friend Caroline talked her into going. It was a really good school. It was the best in the state. She wanted to be a nurse and convinced her that that was what she should do. So, Pat went to Watts Hospital to study nursing. In her first year, she was absolutely miserable, because she missed her BFF. 
So they wrote letters every day. She came home every weekend. It's just, it was really hard that first year. And the relationships were strained with their boyfriends because the girls were older. They were kind of, you know, maturing a little bit. We know boys tend to be a little immature sometimes. And, you know, it took a while to, you know, get in their groove and figure things out. So their relationship was strained. But once the boys started their first year at NC State, so things were kind of rocky, but they were still good. They, they hung it out. But by her junior year at Watts, Jessie presented Pat with a pre-engagement ring, and she was over the moon excited. So despite the rough patches, they were preparing for their future forever. So let's go over the events of February 12th, 1971. This was their last day together. Pat was scheduled to take her state board exams and was supposed to go back to Sanford to go out with Jessie when she finished, but she needed some extra time. Her friend Sue, also from Sanford, was going to give her a ride home. And she, Sue finished up early, and she was going to head out, and she asked Pat if she wanted to wait around for her, and Pat told her to just go ahead. She would just stay in Durham. And so Sue went back to Sanford, and Pat took the extra time to look over her answers, make sure everything was great. She was a good student, so she turned her test in and stayed in the dorms. Jesse made his way back to Pittsburgh from State, and his mom had a surprise for him. See, Jesse and his brother shared a car. Typically, you know, his brother would take the car on Fridays, and Jesse would get it on Saturdays, and that's when he would travel to Sanford to see Pat. But his mom offered to switch their nights so that he could drive down to Pat and take her out for the night. He was so excited that he was going to be able to take her to this Valentine's Day dance that he left in such a hurry he even forgot to bring the box of candy that he got for her. He was just wanted to surprise her because she didn't know he was coming. And so this dance, it, it's a small event that was held in a basement of one of the dorms on the Watts Hospital property. So only about 50 people were in attendance. Um, it wasn't overly extravagant. It was just casual get-together. It's just, you know, they were listening to records. They were dancing, just people hanging out. Um, but it was a perfect opportunity for the lovebirds to spend some time together since they're mostly apart. And she was just so excited that he came to see her because she wasn't expecting him at all. So they, you know, had fun at the party. And around 11 or 11.30, Jesse and Pat left the dance. They went to go park in a well-known area for some some private time, perhaps a little, you know, make-out session like teenagers and college students do sometimes. And the last time they were seen was entering the car. So check-in time at the dorms was 1 a.m. on Friday nights. They were pretty strict about that. And so by 1.10, it was already noticed that Pat was not in. So they immediately went to every room. Her friends make sure she wasn't in the building. They checked. They couldn't find her. So then they called the Durham police. And then once the families got wind that something wasn't right, you know, they warned the police right away. And this is what makes my blood boil every time we have a story like this. So, of course, the reaction of the police at the time was kind of harsh. It was suggested that she was just off sleeping with her boyfriend. They ran off together. Maybe they went to go get married. You know, they'll be back. You know, wait 24 to 48 hours before they would even begin to look. Um, they're adults, technically. They're older. 
So unless something was found that was absolute proof otherwise, they wanted to wait. Now, we have to keep in mind that it's the 70s. However, I still think a lot of people are under the assumption that you have to wait a few days before calling someone missing. Now, I cannot stress this enough. If you know what is happening is out of character for that particular family member, you know, pull uh, can I speak to your manager? Can I speak to your boss? Who is above you? Because you need to go over the chain of command of just someone who's taking down the report. If something has happened, the first few hours are crucial to an investigation. And I'm going to I'm going to stop ranting right now. I know a lot of cases could go the other way if they are just jumped on when a mother family member knows in their gut that something is wrong and someone is missing. Okay. Now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. So it was obvious that they weren't going to get police cooperation right away, right off the bat. So, two carloads of nurses they took up the search on their own, you know, where the police were lacking. So they were out about, you know, driving around just to see if they could find them. They happened to stumble upon Jesse's car the next morning in a cul-de-sac of an undeveloped neighborhood. It was one of their favorite spots, you know, favorite spots to make out. So the car was locked and it was wiped down. So there's no fingerprints. Um, it was a popular spot. They pushed the vents in the in the car to unlock it and they checked inside so inside they found both pat and jesse's jackets pat's purse you know with her wallet her id you know they didn't have cell phones back then but everything was in there but jesse and pat were nowhere to be found and so this was saturday morning so come monday area newspapers they just blasted it on the front page you know, it covered news broadcasts and just put the community on high alert. You know, citizens were asked to look around their properties, just be on the lookout. Everyone was looking for Jesse and Pat, you know, and then the days just ticked by, you know, schedules had to go back to normal. You know, their friends, you know, they had to go back to class. Life had to go on. But in between, you know, search parties headed out, helicopters were searching, it just was a massive hunt, and this community was close-knit. You know, it was safe. They had, a, like, a Mayberry feel kind of, sort of, and it just people were afraid. You know, no more people hung out late at night. You know, no more walking across the campus, you know, through shortcuts. You know, everybody was looking out for each other because there was something going on, and they weren't quite sure what yet. But it had been two weeks since the car had been found. But on February 25th, a surveyor who was working, he found the couple in a wooded area about three miles from the car. And he kind of described it as he just thought there was like a mannequin laying there, saw some legs. Um, but news quickly spread that two bodies had been found. And even news stations, TV, radio, they were announcing it before you know, the family had even been, been notified. One of the aunts was sitting down watching the news and it was announced and um, she had to find out that way. So that was kind of um, kind of bad. I, I can't imagine. Um, but it turned out, so it appeared to be that the couple was kidnapped, tortured, 
and then they were bound with rope. So they were strangled, and then they were, like, let down, strangled. They were pulled up, pulled down um, repeatedly, and they could tell because there was mud caked on their shoes, and the ground was, um, you know, like a hole dug out. They were just kicking, kicking their feet, um, you know, trying to get their last breath. Um, they were tied back to back, sitting on the ground around a tree. Um, their hands were tied, and both of them had multiple stab wounds. So this was just a gruesome, targeted attack. And robbery was not the motive. Jesse still had his car keys in his pocket. He had cash in his wallet. Um, Pat still had that pre-engagement ring. She had jewelry on. Her purse was not messed with. So this was not, you know, robbery. This was not random. This person... You know, it was obvious to, you know, criminal profilers that they knew, their killer knew them. They were attacked for a reason, you know, but they had little to go on and lack of physical evidence. So somewhere out there, you know, the killer's still at large. And he thinks he may have gotten away with it or she. But at least the family sort of had some closure, but they still weren't 100% satisfied. Of course, that you want to find who did this to your loved one. Um, their funerals were held on the same day, just a few hours apart. Um, but because they ran in a close circle, you know, they were together. And so, you know, Pat's was in Sanford and Jesse's was in Pittsburgh. Many people had to, to kind of funeral hop. And it's bad enough to go through one and then you go through two the very same day. Um, I just can't imagine it was a fun day for anybody. Um but it was obvious that they were well-liked, they were well-loved, um, taken too soon. Both churches were filled to capacity. Um, it's just, just sad, sad, sad. See, even though this is a cold case, it is far from over. So it's still considered an active investigation and was recently re-examined by fresh eyes. So according to Spectrum Local News in Charlotte, investigators have gotten their hands on an MVAC machine. Now these are there's only 40 in the entire country, and this is super cool. It is a machine that's able to extract DNA in hard-to-test areas. Now, in, like luckily the rope that was used in this uh, double homicide has been perfectly preserved since 1971 for almost 50 years with the different distinct knots still in place because there's tales that certain, you know, certain serial killers like to do things a certain way and offenders have, you know, their habits that they like to keep. So they, they preserve the way those knots were tied because there was different knots. Um, and in the investigation, they do have an unnamed suspect and he is still living today. And he's been reached, and he's been questioned, and his DNA has been requested. But he's, you know, lawyered up and respectively declined. At the time of the murders, he was a doctor at Watts Hospital. So hopefully soon we will have the answers to solve this 50-year-old case. And now what I have gone over today is just a small piece of this story. Um, if you would like to know more, and I hope you do, please check out a podcast called The Long Dance. It's a series by Eric Pruitt and Drew Adamack. Now, it is extremely detailed and covers the entire investigation over eight episodes. It includes interviews from family members and friends. You'll hear memories about Jesse and Pat told by the people who knew them best. 
Now, both Eric and Drew spent several years researching this on their own. So they even have a recorded interview with the suspect and they call him out by name. Like they are looking to find out who did this. Um, please check out their podcast and dig deeper into the story and just pray for justice for the man and McBain families. So they're still waiting for answers. So that is the story of Pat and Jesse, the Valentine's Day murders from our little area of North Carolina. Um, very fitting for the time. And I realized that with just me not having anybody to talk to but the microphone that can't answer back, it turned out to be a rather short episode. So I hope you guys stuck around till the end and tolerated my late night voice because it is getting very late. And we will be back next week with um, another brand new episode and we'll both be back, uh, me and Shannon, the old time crime gals, together again. But if the meantime, catch up on our past episodes and get ready for some Q&As and some merchandise and some pretty cool new things in the future. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group and we are on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, and wherever you listen. So please share with a friend. Look us up, and until next time, I know Shannon would be mad if I don't do this, so let me see if I can get it right in in her voice. I'll try to make her proud. Let's see. Remember, do the crime. It'll catch up with you in time, and then we'll talk about it. Until next time.